I don't believe I can improve on the way John F. Wolvard, late and longtime president of Dallas Theological Seminary, prefaces the breaking of the sixth seal. Adam, sixth seal, please. He writes this. It would be difficult to paint any scene more moving or more terrible than that described at the opening of the sixth seal. All the elements of a great catastrophic judgment of God are here present. Namely, a great earthquake, the sun becoming black, the moon becoming as blood, the stars of heaven falling like ripe figs the heaven departing as a scroll, and every mountain and island moving. This is an awe-inspiring scene. But what does it mean prophetically? John F. Wolverd. Indeed, that is what we are about. As a prophecy, what does it mean? And for our purposes, where are these events to be placed in the timeline of the eschaton? Let's begin by reading this dramatic and disturbing passage. Turn, please, to Revelation 6, and let's begin with verse 12, 12 to 17. Then I looked, and when he opened the sixth seal... And there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. And the sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountain and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? Indeed. Although it's true that God is ultimately behind every event of the eschaton, we have here in the breaking of the sixth seal the first instance of God working directly. The results of the first four seals, war, famine, death, And even the martyrdom of the saints in the fifth seal were largely the results of human agency, springing from the evil heart of man. In the sixth seal, however, we see divine punishment inflicted upon a blasphemous world. Through what insurance agents here on earth would term acts of God. There are those who reject a literal interpretation of this passage because of its placement. 
That is far too early in the eschaton for this to take place. And that's our first thought. Think, boy, this, this doesn't seem to fit right here. But these two are often the ones who interpret just about everything in the end time prophecies from an historical perspective. We label them historicists. They want to apply everything in Revelation back to events in man's history, already past. That's one of the obstacles, one of the problems I have in researching this. So many, especially older commentators, you'll go to them and they immediately start talking about Caesars and and Greeks and this and in other words, everything that happens in Revelation has happened in history. And that's what it's talking about. And that is not our perspective. Then there are a few who take their literalist interpretation to the point of absurdity. If the King James Version says, The heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Well, then they see a sky literally disappearing and mountains dancing freely across the plains. I recommend and suggest a calm, measured method of interpretation that falls somewhere in between. We can interpret these catastrophic, catastrophic events described in verses 12 to 17 Literally, that is, geologic, atmospheric, celestial events that are unnaturally calamitous. Time and again in God's Word, in prophecies, both Old Testament and New Testament, we're told this is going to be worse than anything this world has ever seen before. Well, we, we believe that. We take it literally. It will be far worse, so bad that many people in the past, many Bible scholars in the past have said, this is just too terrible, we have to assign this to some political thing going on in ancient Rome. We can't imagine that this would happen literally. Yet, even as we take it literally... We keep in mind that the narrator, John, he's, he's our man on the spot. He's our, he, he's our representative. He's, he's recording all of this for our benefit because we all can't be there. He's what journalists used to be. Our narrator, John, is grasping at terrestrial terrestrial imagery with which to describe them. All he has to work from in his mind is things he's seen on earth. And he's trying to fit what he's seen in these visions. How can I get them to understand? And so he tries his best. So let's first examine the details of the text to understand the events and imagery. What is going on? Then we'll determine how and where to place them in the tribulation. The dramatic occurrences described in this passage are prophesied in a number of other places 
in Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament alike. These events were foretold as early as the time of Joel, 800s B.C. Hosea, circa 746 B.C. Isaiah, circa 740 B.C., as well as by Jesus in the Gospel accounts. So let's look at verse 12. I looked when he broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood. I recall one fine morning sitting at my desk in our home in San Diego when I sensed something approaching in the ground beneath my feet. Now, mind you, houses at that there in that place and time, cement slab, one story, cement slab, no basement, cement slab. So that's what was under my feet, carpet, then cement slab. The sensation became stronger and stronger. It was a, approaching from out of the distance. Then it rolled past me and continued on until I felt it no more. It rolled underneath my feet like a passing train. It started over there and it came through and then it went off in the distance. Like like you'd snap a carpet and the waves would go like that. And it, to my feet, it felt like the concrete slab on which our house was built was reduced to little more than chocolate pudding as the waves passed through it. Then it was gone. Most extraordinary to a Midwesterner. That is not the sort of earthquake we're talking about here. In verse 12, this one will change the order of the landscape. It will be so strong that it will produce even atmospheric changes. Turn please to Jeremiah chapter 4. Jeremiah 4, verses 23 to 26. I looked on the earth, and behold, it was formless and void. And to the heavens, and they had no light. I looked on the mountains, and behold, they were quaking, and on the hills moved to and fro. I looked, and behold, there was no man, and all the birds of the heavens had fled. I looked, and behold, a fruit, the fruitful land was a wilderness, and all its cities were pulled down. Before the Lord, before his fierce anger. This will be a global tembler far worse than anything previously known to man. Now, let's be clear. The Lord, the Lord God is capable of doing anything he pleases with the universe he created. There is no limit to not just his power, but his artful imagination. Our God is very imaginative. He also has a great sense of humor. If God so chooses, he can literally switch off the atoms and gases that create the light and heat of our sun, leaving it dark. He can do that. 
All he has to do is say it. He can also speak and turn the surface of the moon from gray to the color of blood. He could even turn the surface of the moon to blood. He could do that. If he was of such a mind, there's nothing stopping him. But is that what is being described here? We know even from this last week that when the moon is thrown into eclipse, it takes on an orange or reddish cast. To someone living in the Middle East in the first century, probably the most readily available example of the color red would be blood. And we also know that violent earthquakes can raise a lot of dust in the air. Not to mention that volcanic eruptions often accompany earthquakes or the other way around. Which can thoroughly mask out the sun for days. Quick sidebar. The typical tents of the Bedouin in the Middle East and those made by the Apostle Paul were made of black woven goat hair. Hence, black hair. The prophet Joel wrote, The Lord says, I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Joel 2, 30-31. It will indeed be catastrophic. Now verse 13. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. John's imagery reminds me of when Linda and I are collecting wild plums. Linda makes a great wild plum jam. Very often the easiest method is to lay a sheep beneath the bush as best as one can on the sloping weed-infested brush underneath underneath the bush and give a good shake to the branches to send the plums raining down onto the sheep. Now, in that case, it's the ripe plums that fall. And the green ones hang on. That's how we want it. We don't want the green ones. Some of the other versions of verse 13 help us out better than the NASB. Sorry, Greg. Let's throw that new Bible away then. As in the New King James, as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. That helps us out. That is, the apostle refers to figs which form too late in the season to be harvested. So it goes into winter and they stay on the bush, on the tree. And they never mature properly. So when spring comes, what happens? They're shed to make room for the new growth, the new fruit. And they drop right off. That's what it's talking about here. The late figs. As to the stars of the sky falling to the earth, 
Now, if you, if you sit back and think about that, kind of hard to swallow, isn't it? We can imagine a number of possibilities that might be so described by someone, a non-scientist in the first century. First, the text does not say that every star fell. What do many non-scientist people today call a meteor? A falling star. If even one literal star fell literally to the surface of the earth, that's all she wrote. It's all over. Done. End of story. End of everything. There would be no one to hide themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. There would be no mountains. There would be no earth. The mountains, indeed the earth itself, would no longer exist. It seems rather obvious that John probably describes an intense meteor storm. A visually dramatic and potentially lethal cascade of meteors toward earth. Especially if they don't get burned up. If they land, they boy. Bad news. Verse 14. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. The imagery here is confusing, even contradictory, it would seem. If one imagines a scroll, such as the one in chart 9, thank you, Adam, (laughs) one could split it apart, or one could roll it up, but not both, right? I mean, you could slice it down the middle, or you could roll it up, but I can't see doing both. The word translated split apart in the NASB, in other translations, vanished, receded, departed, is apocariste. Write that down, there'll be a test. Which means to separate, rend apart, or depart. The King James Version seems to track the best. And the heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together. Again, with all this going on, great upheavals on the earth, meteors crashing down. One would expect the stars in the sky not to uh, expect the stars in the sky to vanish. That is to be utterly obscured to human vision. Isaiah puts it this way. And all the host of heaven will wear away, and the sky will be rolled up like a scroll. All their hosts will also wither away, as a leaf withers from the vine, or as one withers from the fig tree. Isaiah 34.4 With this cataclysmic earthquake, Occurring, topography is going to be changed. 
Contrary to the image of mountains dancing across the plain, however, the word translated moved or removed is ekeneth, ekeneth, uh, I can say this word. Do you care? No, please, save it. <laughs> okay. We get the word kinetic from it. It's, the root word is kineo. So we get the word kinetic from it. Which means to move or shake, as in shaking one's head. It means something like moving about, which does not necessarily require them to be walking across the countryside. A sensible interpretation is that the mountains and islands are being fiercely shaken. Even some mountains reduced to rubble or islands disappearing beneath the waves. If a mountain is standing still in one spot for thousands of years, in its place, and suddenly is shaking and crumbling before one's eyes, it could reasonably be said that the mountain was moving out of its place. Another way to interpret these moving mountains is the prophet Zechariah's description of Christ's return. Zechariah 14.4 In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley. So that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. Well, that tracks. That description fits well with what happens in places to the earth's crust as one side of a fault line slides in one direction and the other slides in the other. And they scrape against each other. That's what happens. We're hoping that someday California will drop off from the United States. No, I'm, I'm sorry, Patty, I don't mean that literally. I know, the, I know you have kin there. <clears throat> Let me pause just for a few moments. Before we go any further, any questions about what we've covered so far? Or are you buying all this? Nope, Greg isn't buying it. <clears throat> I always try to put myself in the place of, uh, in, the, in this case, John, uh, trying to base on his experiential uh, information at that point. He's never seen an earthquake. They occurred before or in his day, but without TV and so forth, chances are he's never seen anything like this. I think it's entirely possible that there was nothing going on in the sky. There was no even meteor showers. The earthquake alone could could produce all of what he's talking about, as severe as it is. I mean, it's a cataclysmic earthquake that mm-hmm. moves mountains. Well, is, if anybody's ever seen a building knocked down, the dust cloud that occurs from that is such that you don't see anything right. for a, you know, a couple of hours or an hour or more until it begins to settle down again. Uh, furthermore, 
all of the movement of the earthquake could produce, you know, as you as the outer shell is opened wide, the inner core could be spewing into the sky. There's your huh. there's your stars. Uh, that was my question. Yeah, yeah. Okay. there's your stars. Hot and, rocks falling. Yeah. And and he would he would never have seen anything. You know, I, I shudder to think how we'd explain, uh, you know, with mm-hmm. with what we know that that he wouldn't have known uh, because of TV. We have seen some of this stuff, but still, how would we explain all of it? Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think it's I always try to look for the simplest possible explanation. And I think that least fits. Now, God is God and could have done anything he wanted. But if the primer, prime mover here is the earthquake, it could have produced all of this. Yeah, good point. Yeah, that's possible. Uh, I just remember what it was like when Mount St. Helen erupted, and that's... Ash all yes. over the place. Yes, yeah, uh-huh. But even as we're, we need to keep in mind here, even as we're looking at logical explanations for all this, I still like meteors, but yours tracks too. Uh, Even as we see logical explanations for this, we, we need to remind ourselves, God is behind this and God is doing whatever he wants to and this is bad. No matter, what is, no matter what explanation we can conjure for this, it's bad. People living at this time will see in a moment. They run screaming into the night. It's bad. Well, let's push on. Verse 15. As we speak of the devil. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. Perhaps the most repeated element of this cataclysmic prophecy is that this time will be so bad that men will seek refuge in the rocks and caves of the mountains. Who did Isla give that to? Kendall, Dennis, okay, great. Isaiah, turn please to Isaiah chapter 2. Now, let me, before you read, the, a good example. How many times have we referenced Isaiah here today? This is at least the third time. This, this, is, this is an illustration of why it's treacherous to ask me an ad hoc question that's supposed to, the answer of which is supposed to come out of my brain cells. When I came in this morning, Jeff Zimmerman said to me, Say, I was reading Isaiah this morning, and I was talking about these prophecies. And everything. Are you using Isaiah in, <clears throat> in any of your studies? And of course, I pointed out, well, yes, you'd, you'd know that I was if you showed up to class more often. But <clears throat> I'm sorry, it's one of my reflexes. Why aren't you in class? Okay. But I totally forgot that in this lesson, there's three instances of that. I should have said that. We'll stick around today. There'll be three examples of that, but I forgot. Okay. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 12 first. 
For the, <clears throat> for the Lord of hosts will have a day of reckoning against everyone who is proud and lofty, and against everyone who is lifted up, that he may be abased. Now, skip down to verse 17, please. And read to 21. 21, 17 to 21. The pride of man will be humbled, and the loftiness of men will be abased, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. But the idols will completely vanish. Men will go into caves of the rocks and into holes of the ground before the terror of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty when he arises to make the earth tremble. And that day men will cast away to the moles and the bats. Oh, Yeah, that's right. But their that's idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship, in order to go into the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs, before the terror of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty, when he arises to make the earth tremble. Now, that sounds kind of weird there, but think of it. They've made these idols to worship. And what's probably the lowest thing on this earth? The moles and the bats. So, but they're in the caves, aren't they? The bats are in the caves. We're going to get the bats out of the caves. So we'll take our idols and throw them out so that the moles and bats say, hey, what's that? A shiny thing. And they go run after it, and then they go in and take over their cave. Is it not interesting that even as the mountains are quaking and shifting, men of all stations choose there to hide? Well, verse 16 explains why. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Is it too late? One wonders, instead of running to hide, effectively committing suicide, could these people have just repented and accepted Christ Jesus, the Lamb, as Lord and Savior? From the text, we can see that they acknowledge there is a God and what God is capable of. They know who's responsible for this. Is it now too late for that decision? Do they know their time is up and they're out of options? Or are they just so terrified by the cataclysmic events that they're reduced to unreasoning bestial behavior? Unthinking, unreasoning. It's impossible to say. We can only praise God that we as believers will not find ourselves in that terrible situation. But instead of falling down before the throne of God, who they even acknowledge is capable of doing all this, instead of that, they run and hide and essentially commit suicide. If the mountains are crumbling, they run underneath them fall on us. And <laughs> they obviously haven't read the end of the story. 
Because what they're calling out is, hide us from the presence of Him who sits on the throne and the wrath of the Lamb. Well, if they're dead, they're going to be resurrected after all this is done, and they're going to end up in the lake of fire. It didn't do them any good to run under that mountain. And here again is another example of the inherent evil in the heart of man. We who believe say, well, just, just repent, fall down, confess. No. Yes, there is a God, and I don't care. Yes, somebody, I hear somebody died for my sins, and I don't care. Even with all hell breaking loose on earth, they don't care. That's the heart of man. Note that they seek refuge here in this context. They seek refuge from the presence, or as we know from the sermon today, face of Father God, prosopo, but the wrath of the Lamb. The face of God, but they're from the wrath of the Lamb. Admittedly, elsewhere they ascribe their fear to Yahweh, the Lord God, mostly in the Old Testament, and in a moment to both. We discussed earlier how, in a very real sense, father and son in the eschaton are almost interchangeable. But to put it in base human terminology, Christ Jesus is the star of the show. In all of the last things, Christ Jesus is the star of the show. He is the one coming in judgment to rule the earth. He is the one wielding the rod of iron. He is the one whose wrath we are to fear. It will not be the suffering servant that we know of in the New Testament. Verse 17. For the great day of their, both of them, their wrath. The great day of their wrath has come. And who is able to stand? Now those seeking shelter or quick death reveal that it is the wrath of both father and son they fear. Their anguished question, and who is able to stand, answers itself. No one. No one by their own merits. No one not already aligned with Jesus the Christ. No one is able to stand. None. Now, I promised that before we were through, I would place this in the chronology of the last things. Jesus himself gives us a clue to when these events will take place. Turn, please, to Matthew 24. Matthew 24, his great Olivet Discourse. Note first how his prophecy ties in so well with our passage in Revelation. Let's begin with verse 29. 
But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Now for most most of the translations, most of the versions, you'll see that Jesus is, half of that Jesus is quoting. So there's one clue in after the tribulation. But that in itself is still a bit vague. Now, what Jesus says next tells us when this occurs in the eschaton. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And then all of the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. He will send forth his angels, the great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. That is the second coming of Christ, immediately at the end of the tribulation. That passage we read earlier from Zechariah 14 of Christ standing on the Mount of Olives with the mountains being split and the halves moving in different directions, that too is all at his return. So what are we to make of this narrative being situated beneath the sixth seal? So near the beginning of the tribulation. Glad you asked. Here's what Walvert has to say. The day of wrath, in one sense, is the whole period of the great tribulation, when God will deal in direct judgment with the world, climaxing with the return of Christ in power and glory and divine judgment upon all who oppose his coming. Now let me just pause that quotation right there. That's true. As you read through Scripture, you see the day of the Lord or that day, or the day. They're all referring to the end times. But depending on the context, it could mean the rapture. It could mean the tribulation. It could mean when Christ returns the second time. It could mean his kingdom. It could mean all of the above. It's a very flexible term. It's applied in a number of different ways. Now, Walvard quotes E.W. Bullinger, who describes the first six seals as, quote, a summary of the judgments distributed over the whole book, a brief summary of what will occur in the day of the Lord, up to the time of his actual apocalypse or unveiling in chapter 19. We're in chapter 6. Then Wolverd continues, In some sense, chapter 6 is the outline of the important facts of the period of great tribulation. And the rest of the events of the book of Revelation are comprehended in the seventh seal introduced in chapter 8. And that tracks. Under the first seal, Antichrist is introduced. And then... It proceeds. It gets darker and darker after that. And until 
now we break the sixth seal, and all hell breaks loose on earth. Then we break the seventh seal to reveal everything else. The trumpets and bowls. So this gets back to, if I had the number of the charts, I'd ask you to show up, but doesn't matter. Remember, remember my chart of the whole of the whole tribulation, where it it goes across, and then, or I'm sorry, the keep going, eight, eight, try eight, Adam. There we go. Thank you. Very good. Thank you, Greg. It's, we made the point in this session. Here are the seals. We're at number six, terrible natural phenomenon. What's coming up next is the first prophetic vision, or some would say uh, interlude. Then seven. What is seven? It doesn't, nothing happens under the seal except everything else. The trumpets. What happens in the seventh trumpet? The bowls of wrath. Bowls of wrath. So everything is in the seals. Everything is in that scroll or book. Now I know for many of you that's probably a new thought. But it tracks. It really does. And this is one example of why it tracks. Thus I believe that the events portrayed with the breaking of the sixth Seal, Revelation 12 to 17, 6, 12 to 17, are a preview, as it were, for the Apostle John of the final days of the tribulation just prior to the coming of the Lord. John, what's happening in the first six seals? The Lord God and the Lamb are telling John, this is what's going to be happening. First, there's going to be Antichrist. Now, Antichrist literally, physically, does not emerge from heaven on a horse. That's all prophetic imagery. He's a human being on, the, on earth. He comes out of humanity. But it's out of heaven and out of hell. He is given his powers. His powers come from hell. His permission to do all this comes from heaven. And by introducing him, by Antichrist beginning his work, what happens? War, famine, death, martyrs. Christians are killed. Whether they're Messianic Jews or Gentiles, it doesn't matter. They're Christians. And they're martyred. Then... Terrible things, physical, natural things. And that all of that is happening throughout the eschaton and the, the tribulation. Not eschaton, but the tribulation. These events just that we've examined today do not speak at all of events in the early days of the tribulation, but foreshadow the climactic end of the first act of the eschaton, 
the tribulation. Okay, we've got just a few minutes. Any thoughts? Any questions? (laughs) I scared him away. (laughs) I expect to see some emails. If Isla was here and not tending to grandchildren, she would tell you that you send me a question in an email, I answer it. Probably telling you way more than you wanted to know. That's a good way to to get more information. Our Father in Heaven, We stand in awe of you, of your works. Right now we live in a time of grace and we're overwhelmed by your grace, your long-suffering, your forgiveness, your mercy. But learning of all of this, we also stand in awe of how there will come a day when your long-suffering will come to an end. And humanity, those who have turned aside, those who have rejected you and your Son, will pay a terrible price. And we acknowledge that knowing this colors how we live right now. You are a great, awesome, terrible God. And it is a terrible thing to fall under your wrath. We thank you and we praise you that we will not. That during this time, In the last things, we will be with you, with our Savior, far, far away from all this going on on earth. Thank you. We praise you. We thank you for teaching us this from your word. In the name of Jesus, amen.